So my guest today, John Urschel, played in the NFL, played professional football for the Baltimore Ravens, played as a linebacker. What it takes to succeed, to the work ethic, the talent, the extraordinary grit to get to the level where you're actually chosen and you're playing in the NFL is an astonishing story on its own. But that is not the entirety of John's story. In fact, from the youngest of times, John developed kind of a passion slash obsession slash love for math, for complex problem solving, and found himself actually immersed in the world of math and mathematics from the time he was a little kid, teaching himself all sorts of things just for the fun of it. That ended up eventually landing him degrees in mathematics while simultaneously playing at Penn State for one of the biggest teams in the world in college. And then as he's wrapping up his pro career, making a decision to go back and pursue his PhD in math at MIT, which is actually where he was when I sat down with him to record this conversation. I love the way that he weaves together um, this deep passion and love for two worlds, for football and for math and complex problem solvings. It's really compelling. It's all laid out in a new book called Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football, which also has a pretty cool structure. He literally alternates chapters between math and football, which I thought was a fascinating way to travel the journey with him. And we travel that sort of parallel journey in this conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You've got this lifelong love affair with sort of like movement with football and with mathematics. And it feels like underneath that is just a profound interest in solving complex problems. And it sounds like a lot of that came from your mom. And she was probably pretty similarly wired to you. Yeah, she was. She uh, she loved mathematics when she was younger, loved sort of quantitative things. And, uh, you know, she ended up becoming a nurse, but this was largely due to... Uh, 
you know, her feeling like one sort of a little self-conscious about her math abilities or her perceived lack, lack thereof. And uh, two, not really knowing what you could do with math and physics. Hmm. You mean like an apply in the real world? Yeah, in the real world, in the sense that, uh, okay, I'll tell you a little bit about my mother. Uh, So she grew up in inner city Cincinnati in quite a rough area. Her father never graduated high school. He later got his GED. He worked at uh, GM. Uh, Her mother stopped school after uh, middle school because she was in the segregated South. And so there were schooling stopped after middle school and she became a seamstress. And so my mother... You know, she was she graduated from high school and she was the strongest student in her school. And despite that, you know, her guidance counselor actually recommended to her that, you know, rather than applying to university and going to college, that she should try to be a secretary. Not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but when you have sort of someone who's really interested in academics to sort of push them away from college is a crazy thing to me. But uh, thankfully, my mom didn't listen to her high school guidance counselor. She went to the local University of Cincinnati, and she really just, she wasn't really introduced to fields in STEM. And it's because of this that she, you know, eventually became a nurse. But I have to say that in general, it's tough to, it's tough to say you want to grow up and be something if you don't even know what that something is or if you don't even know a single person who does that thing. And so that was one of the biggest things that sort of limited her. And that I think is one of the main reasons why she was so determined with me. Not determined to make me good at math because she was good at math, but she wanted to make sure that no matter what I was interested in, no matter what I wanted to be, that the only thing that would limit me would be either a lack of interest, a lack of talent, a lack of hard work, or perhaps just plain old bad luck. But she wanted to make sure that it would never have a single thing to do with a lack of resources, the household I was born into, or the color of my skin. And this is something that she truly believed in, especially based off her experiences. And so this is what she made sure of. And she saw that I was also quite good at uh, quantitative things. And so she, uh, she jumped on it, although she never pushed me. She just wanted to make sure I always had the resources. Yeah. How did that start to show up? Because it seems like it showed up really early in your life. <laughs> yeah. You mean, how did my... Uh, in, in, in your sort of quantitative skills. Yeah. How did she recognize this? Yeah. Yeah. So this is when I'm like really little. I can't even like say full sentences. But what I do know is I know all the shapes. And I love the shapes to the point where I see the shapes And one of my favorite games, I'm told, I mean, who remembers what they were doing like before they were two, but I'm told that one of my favorite things to do when we like go outside would be to point and recognize the shapes that I see at home out in the world, like recognize a square, recognize a rectangle, recognize what the stop sign is, things like this, recognize a circle. Mm. So she saw that and, and really started to uh, to nurture that. I, I mean, at the same time, also your so your mom um, you're you're born actually in Canada, right? Yeah, I was born in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. But then soon after, moved to Buffalo. Yes, uh, after you know, after a few years, 
we ended up in Buffalo. Right. And then your mom in this mix, because she went back to school also for yes. to be a lawyer. Yes. Well, I mean, being a nurse was, uh, first of all, sort of her schedule was quite tough. And she also wanted to try to sort of, you know, have a higher income and also have a job that might be a little more conducive to being able to raise me and give me the things that, you know, mm. she thought I needed and deserved. And so... You know, it's not easy to do sort of in the middle of your life, in the middle of your career to sort of go back to school at night and, you know, try to become something else. But she did it. Yeah. I, I mean, especially because, you know, she got a kid. Um, yeah. In the middle of this also, your your parents ended up going their separate ways. Yes. Yes. So, they, they did. So she ends up being effectively a single mom yes. in Buffalo mm -hmm. with a kid. Mm-hmm in a career like nursing, which not a lot of people leave. I mean, it's sort yeah. of like the medical professions. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so once you start in there, as much as, you know, like there are, there are a lot of great things and also a lot of real struggles that people talk about in, in those professions. It seems like it's the type of path where people kind of like once you're in, you're in and you kind of just ride it out. So to be a single mom in Buffalo, mm -hmm. raising a kid, a woman of color, yes. and then say, I'm gonna go back to school and completely change direction in careers. Yeah. I mean, powerful, disruptive. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, my uh, my mother is a strong woman. Yeah. She is a strong, strong woman and uh, does not surprise me one bit. Like knowing her, yeah. this does not surprise me. Yeah. If you told me this story abstractly, of course this is, you know, this is unusual, but knowing my mother, she- uh, Just like, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, your dad at the same time, uh, was a surgeon at the time. Yes. Talk to me a bit about sort of like you and him and that relationship in the early Yeah, days. we uh, we had such an interesting relationship when I was younger, I have to admit. it. Uh, I don't talk about it much. I, I simultaneously didn't feel that connected to my father. I, I wasn't that connected to my father sort of when I was young. But at the same time, I so desperately, desperately wanted to be just like him. To the point where, like, I would hang on his every word. It was like, uh, his word was like, you know, it was like, you know, it was like law to me. And uh, I, uh, the reason I became a football player, the reason I played football even in the first place, or even wanted to play football when I was younger, is because my father played college football. This was the single reason why I wanted to play football. And uh, as I got older, I mean, in my uh, sort of middle sort of teen years, my father, he lived in Boston at the time. He was the uh, chief of surgery at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess, I believe, Harvard's yeah, hospital yeah. in Boston. Yeah, and, legendary uh, hospital. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he was, he was really an extremely successful thoracic surgeon. And I also wanted to be just like him in the sense that I wanted to be really, really good at something. And eventually he, you know, he got a little burned out. He decided it's time to retire. He moved back to Buffalo right around, or he moved back to Canada, I should say, but not too far from me. And right around sort of, I believe, like seventh, eighth grade for me. And he came back and he decided that, uh, he decided I was out of shape decided that I was a little on the heavy side and that he was going to work with me. I was going to get in shape and also he was going to help me with sort of my studies. 
And so he would pick me up after school every day. And the first thing we would do is we would go to the gym. He would like work me like a dog, like we're lifting weights. I'm running up and down stairs. And then we would go to the library and we would study. And uh, this was like, this was such a sort of interesting time of my life and an experience that I really enjoyed. Like I got into very good shape and uh, this was a time where I really got sort of uh, introduced to a lot of areas of mathematics and physics that I wouldn't have been introduced to if it was just me and my mother, because my mother just, uh, she just didn't know about, you know, mm. about certain things. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also just to me, the, the psychology of your dad sort of like, you know, like coming back, um, mm -hmm. you know, closer to where you live now. Yeah. So you can be much more regular presence, but also showing up and saying like, Hey, you're out of shape. Um, we're, we're going to do something about this. Did yeah. that land well with you? Did you reject that? Or were you just like, okay, let's do this? I was Cause like- Because it, it could be a lot of judgment that gets received by a lot of kids, depending on how it's all. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, my father is, uh, he's a very, well, especially back then he was a very, uh, he was a very direct person. Mm. And he's, he's always been a very direct person, but I took it in the best way possible. I said, okay, we're gonna do this. And I am going to like, I'm going to lose weight. I am not going to like, you know, I'm not going to be a fat kid and I'm going to do this and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to do this with my father. Yeah. I and think this is going to be a great thing because I have to admit, I was sort of, uh, I was quite an overweight child sort of, uh, for a large number of years. I mean, I was, uh, I'll admit I was like, uh, I was bullied when I was sort of mm. in elementary school and, uh, yeah, my weight was sort of an issue. And my father just said, you know what? We're fixing this now. And uh, this is not going to be an issue for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of sounds like he said, we're doing this together rather yeah. than you have to go do this. Yeah. Which it's not makes like, all the difference in the world. Absolutely. It's not yeah. like he's saying, okay, it's not like he's just sitting somewhere and saying, oh, go run these stairs, go run these laps. Yeah. We're doing them together. And that was something really enjoyable. And like, I would see like how much better my dad was at things than I was. Mm. And it made me just really, really want to like improve. Yeah. And I did. And to the point where now I'm constantly like beating him in races. I'm constantly <laughs> outlifting him. And Like how's that for him right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he predicted that's the right, way right. it was going to be. And uh, yeah, so I have to say, I, uh, I have to really credit my father for a lot of things. That being like a really important time in my life. And also for him taking care of my, uh, like my higher mathematics education. Mm. Whereas my mother is sort of responsible for all the things that occurred when I was little. Just her knowledge of mathematics, her knowledge of sciences, you know, it was limited. And so she can only do so much. And this is where my father really, really came in. Yeah. It sounds like both of them also brought to you this, this ethos of you can do tough things. Um, and and almost, it's not just you can do tough things, mm. but there's a certain joy <laughs> to embracing mm. them and working to be extraordinary, mm. to be exceptional at almost anything. And there's nothing that if you set your mind to it, you know, you can't rise up and be, you know, among the best or accomplish incredible yes. things at from both of them, because they both did it in their own domains in unique ways. Absolutely. And they, uh, they sort of taught me this in very different ways. Like my mother, this always came from 
a very sort of like loving, like enjoyment point of view. And my father really came at it from a much more sort of intense, hard work, sort of like sweat, tears sort of point of view. And I really needed both sides of that. Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> I mean, along the way, if you want to become extraordinary or anything, you're going to have both experiences. Yes. No matter how much love for the game or the pursuit it is, mm -hmm. there's going to come a time where you're like, this is just brutal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to push through. It's like hands yeah. down, push through. Yeah. My mother always had sort of, you know, a lot of optimism where my, my father is the, uh, is the realist. Yeah. You mentioned also that that time with your dad uh, exposed you to the academic world in a completely yes. different way. I know you tell a story about how you ended up, were you 13 years old or something like that in a, in a college, yeah, college yeah, class? Yeah, 13. And uh, this was completely, so here's just an example of sort of my mother versus my father. My mother has decided that she, because, so first of all, my mother decided that I should be an aerospace engineer. Mm. Why? Because... Space was the most sort of amazing thing that she like could imagine. And she thought, well, the most brilliant quantitative minds in the world, they're all working on outer space. And so I need to be a rocket scientist and, you know, or aerospace engineer as they're called. So my mother, like she enrolls me in this uh, summer camp for engineers, not just engineers, but uh, African-American engineers. And I'm sure that this camp is fantastic for certain types of people. Perhaps it's fantastic for people who actually want to be engineers. But for me, it was uh, it was quite dreadful. I found you know I found us sort of doing very uh, very hokey things, doing very sort of uh, you know like making a little like bottle rocket with you know like baking soda or whatever or you know, using popsicle sticks to build bridges, things like this, which, you know, some people, I'm sure some people really enjoy, but for me, it just didn't, I didn't really, I didn't get enjoyment out of this. I didn't see this as sort of a great use of sort of all the math and physics and all of the mm. sort of complexity and sort of challenges that I'm used to doing. I just didn't really see it and I didn't enjoy it. And my father said, you know what? Let's just forget this, you know, forget this camp and let's just get you some real math. He said, he said, the stuff with like popsicle sticks and all of this other thing, this is nonsense. Let's show you what math really is. And so he said, and at the time he was going back to school, getting his master's in economics. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to sign you up to audit this calculus course. And he gave me, he bought me a calculus book. And first of all, I should say, it was the easiest calculus course we could find. It was calculus for business majors. It wasn't like your mm -hmm. typical calculus course, but uh, I, I really took to it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it was an amazing experience for me, I must say, because I was doing well, like I did well. I, uh, yeah, it was at that point that I sort of, I knew that, uh, I knew that, okay, you know what? I'm not bad at math and this is something I enjoy. And yeah. I also experienced that through some of my father's courses he took because, okay, a lot of people might not know, but uh, once you sort of get past the undergrad level of economics, it's very mathematics based. For instance, in a PhD in uh, 
economics, one of the first courses you take for microeconomics is something called measure theory, mm. which is truly just mathematics. And so I would learn a lot from him through the courses he was taking and the things he was doing. I mean, he's the one who taught me what a matrix is and, you know, what a determinant is and things like this. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing also because, you know, when you talk about math or for our international listeners, maths, maths, right? yes, yes, of course. Um, the generally, especially, you know, like in the early years, the emotion that gets tied to it in an academic setting is not love. It's, yeah. it's fear and yes. it's, and it's frustration and it's futility. And mm -hmm. it's often so many people talk about being scarred mm -hmm. <laughs> by their exposure yeah. to, to math at a really young age where yeah. like, and, and the goal becomes heads down, survive it and, yes. and, and get to a place where you don't ever have to interact with it as soon as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And something in your brain was wired. I mean, here's my curiosity actually. It sounds like there there were two things at play and I'm curious how you experienced this. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one side, it sounds like there's just something organic about you that is wired from the earliest age to somehow yearn for and interact with the experience of math and complex problem solving mm -hmm. in a way that's unique to you. And at the same time, I also wonder, you know, whether part of your love and embrace of it had to do with the way it was offered to you or do you have a sense for, for what that blend might be? Yeah, I do. I uh, First of all, I have to say that I was never, this is gonna sound so strange, from the time I was born until like, really until I got to college, there was not a single subject in mathematics, like in school, yeah. that I was ever truly taught. In the sense of I would pretty much get to just about every math class, more or less knowing the outline of everything and maybe just needing to be refreshed on some details because I learned these things like, you know, years before from workbooks at home or workbooks that I would convince my parents to buy me from the bookstore or things like this. And so my learning experience in mathematics was very different than everyone else's. Everyone else is used to learning in a classroom teacher, you know, they introduce you to some formula. They show you a few examples on the homework, you just repeat it 20 times, you remember it, you know, whatever the formula or the sort of like quote unquote algorithm is to like factor or whatever it may be, you do it on the exam and then you forget about it. And my learning experience would be, I would have some book on some subject and rather than actually read the like section about like, you know, learning how to do certain things, I would just jump to the problems. I would just try to solve them without knowing how I'm supposed to solve them. And that became a really interesting experience, trying to solve a math problem without someone telling you the standard technique to solve it. And so you sort of feel like a explorer. Mm -hmm. You feel like a discoverer in some way. And so I would try these things and I would come up with my own ideas and my own techniques. And sometimes it will work, sometimes it wouldn't. When it wouldn't, I would go back to the chapter and learn, like, how do you do this? Why didn't I think of this idea? And if it did work, well, then I, I just didn't even go back to like how other people did it. I know how I do it. Mm. And this sort of learning experience and this sort of puzzle experience and the sense of discovery, this made my learning mathematics at home just an amazing, amazing endeavor. And 
okay, perhaps, you know, I have some proclivity to sort of puzzles and problem solving, but uh, I don't think this is that unusual. I mean, I understand there's so many people who hate mathematics based off their experiences in schools, but how many people love puzzles? Like how many people do Sudoku puzzles on the train? How many people love doing crossword puzzles? How many people sort of do you see anytime they're sort of idly having to get from one place to another or have some break playing some puzzle game on their phone? I think people do love puzzles. People do love that challenge in some ways, but I think often they don't see a connection between that and mathematics. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I learned mathematics, these two things were one and the same. Yeah. And, and it also says something about you that you did, you wanted to figure out not just the answer, but the way to the answer on your own. Mm -hmm. That's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Because most people will be like, show me the shortest way to get to this <laughs> sign thing. Yeah. Like, and then I'll bang it out. Like I'll repeat it over and over. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. Like I have the shortest way sitting in front of me in the chapter. Yeah. I don't want it. Like I want, I want, like, I want, like, I mean, it's like Richard Feynman's classic line when he won like, you know, the Nobel Prize. He's like, you know, like, I don't care about the prize. Like it was the kick of figuring the thing out. Yeah. Like that was what lit him up. And in his domain was, you know, like physics. Mm -hmm. Your domain was this, you know, broad category of this thing called math. Yeah. And I do agree. I think we all have that in some particular area or domain or topic. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder often if it's just the way that we're often um, offered, you know, like the pursuit of math. Yeah. Uh, closes maybe so many people who would be open to that off mm -hmm. just because it's sort of like not offered in the way that maybe would really light that fire. I, I ended up my yeah. um, freshman year of college, mm -hmm. one of my uh, good friends and sweet mates actually got there. He was like the classic, you know, like perfect score on the SAT guy. Mm -hmm. And he was in math. He he showed up and his freshman year, he was TAing graduate level math courses because there was something about him, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I remember walking into his room one night and he's sitting there, it was like a Friday night, right? Mm -hmm. and everyone's getting ready to go out. He's sitting there with this advanced math textbook. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm doing my problem sets. I'm like, I thought you finished those. He's like, no, I did all the assigned ones. He's like, I wanna do all the rest of them in the yeah. book. Yeah. Just because this was like, there was, there was no more fun thing that he could mm -hmm. think of doing. I'm, I'm like, wow, <laughs> there are people like this. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just what, uh... It's what you enjoy if yeah. you've uh, been introduced to it in the right way. I mean, I know, I mean, I just, I would compare this idea of, you know, sort of looking for the quickest way to do something and then just, you know, doing it and getting to the answer, you know. I equate it to, you know, someone like, you know, if you're trying to solve some like Sudoku puzzle, yeah. why in God's name would you just find the answer and then just fill in the numbers, you know? Like solving, like having the completed puzzle isn't the point. Nah. That's not the enjoyment. The enjoyment is getting from this blank piece of paper, this blank, you know, nine by nine grid to the answer. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think so much of it has to come with understanding what needs to happen in your brain to make the leap from this being my job to this being the game. Yeah. You know, when it yeah. becomes play, then all of a sudden everything changes and you yearn to do mm -hmm. more of it. Yeah. I mean, this is something that... Uh, you know, when I mentor young sort of would-be mathematicians, or even when I was mentored when I was an undergraduate, it's the process is crucial. Mm. It's not about the results. It's about the process. My first research project with uh, 
brilliant professor. He did his uh, undergrad and master's at Moscow State, PhD at Princeton, was a professor at Caltech, and was at Penn State for a time until uh, Maryland bought him back from Penn State. But uh, he would always tell me that, you know, okay, we were doing research in uh, mathematical physics, celestial mechanics to be specific, but uh, he would always tell me the right sort of ratio was about 80% learning and 20% research. And the point was the research we're doing is useless if I'm not learning. For, for us, you know, as a pair, it was not about me just proving this thing. It's not about the result. It's about my journey through proving this thing. It's my journey of learning and exploring and discovering and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. And then, you know, finally breaking through that this was sort of the crucial part of our mathematical research, not the result, but sort of the process and the things I gained from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a powerful lesson when you zoom the lens out to the broader concept of just life, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you can bring that frame to everything. And it also, it's, it's sort of like it's, it helps you stand in this place of a growth versus a fixed mindset, yeah. you know? Cause it's like, no, you're gonna hit a lot of walls mm -hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, as long as you're sort of like understanding that and in the context and figuring out, okay, so what's my next move? Mm -hmm. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, 
wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere red beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. So simultaneously with, as you're developing this love, this mad passion, you also get exposed to the world of football. You end up in a private high school Mm -hmm. um, in Buffalo. And it seems like this is really the first time that football enters your life in a much, I mean, you had the, you knew that your dad had played in college and that was kind of like a a cool thing for you. Yeah. But it really enters your life when you step into high school. Yeah, no, it does. And, you know, I wanted to play because of my father and, you know, the first time I started playing, I have to say, I really took to it. I, my technique was awful. I barely knew how to put the pads on, but uh, it turns out I was quite good at hitting people and uh, coaches caught on to this. So, Hmm. yeah. And so it all went from there. So you start playing and so you're simultaneously in high school, you're a great student, you're Mm -hmm. going deeper and deeper into math, and you're also really excelling as a football player. Yes. Comes time where you hit the end of high school Mm -hmm. and you've got some decisions to make. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, okay, in my mind, there weren't really, you know, there wasn't really much in the way of decisions in that I was very interested in football. And I have to say, I wasn't nearly as interested in math as an academic pursuit. Okay. In the sense of, okay, I knew a lot of math. I was very, very good at math. Everyone knew this. But uh, my experiences with math didn't feel extremely academic. So why would I be at all interested in, or at all excited about sort of more of the same in college? Mm. You know what I mean? I'll take my math classes. I'll just do my stuff. People will leave me be. And... uh yeah, so I, you know, I wasn't like sort of excited for, you know, for college in terms of academics, but I was very excited about the prospect of playing college football. Yeah, and so coming out of high school, I mean, you have, you start to have interesting opportunities. Yeah. You know, like, and and it seems like there's also this interesting tension that starts to arise between you and your mom about sort of like, what's the right choice here? <laughs> Me and my mom, and also my father and my mom. So uh, interesting. My father had strong opinions. My mother had strong opinions, and I was sort of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Like for instance, my mother. First of all, she didn't even want me to play football, 
she, uh, you know, she wanted me to, you know, just uh, do my undergrad, at, you know, like at Princeton or an MIT or a Stanford. And uh, my father, he was very big on the football. And uh, to start, it seemed like I was going to play football at Princeton, which felt like a very sort of good agreement between the three of us. But uh, but then my senior year, I started getting interest from, you know, slightly bigger programs. And so the University of Buffalo offers me a scholarship. And at this point, I really have no other offers. And my mother says, absolutely not. He's going to Princeton. I mean, it's Princeton versus the University of Buffalo. And my father says, no, 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 no. He needs to play football at the University of Buffalo because the quality of football is sort of much, much better. And like football at Princeton is going to be dreadful and he can get a good education there and he can do his, you know, his master's or his PhD at a different program. And so I was very uncertain what I was going to do. My father and mother sort of, you know, opposed in terms of what, what is the right call. And then I, uh, and then I got interest from the likes of uh, Penn State, Boston College and Stanford and sort of with Penn State, we all came to a good middle ground. My mother needed the most convincing. I mean, my father, of course, at Penn State, yes, you need yeah, to go there. Yeah, it's like classic at that point, classic D1 football. Yes. high um, level, you right. know, this is like a dynasty. Yeah. Lots um, of tradition. It sounds like you went there, um, you verbally committed. Yeah. And then like at the last minute, <laughs> there was like a tiny glitch with a call from Stanford. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, like, as soon as the weekend was over, like the next Monday, the, Harbaugh, the coach of Stanford at the time, gives me a phone call and there was an issue in that the person who was recruiting me, the offensive line coach at Stanford, resigned. And so they were sort of scrambling to, you know, find out who he was recruiting and get, you know, things on track. And when he sort of called me, I had already committed to Penn State. And although Stanford was actually like my dream school, I, I told him no because, you know, I felt, uh, I felt like I had committed to Penn State. I had given them my word. And, uh, you know, I felt like it was very important to me that I, I stand by my word. Mm. That must've been a hard moment, especially at that age. Cause I mean, we're talking about like an 18 year old kid yeah. who's making a decision to choose Penn state over Stanford, because yeah. at that age, your word matters that much to you. That's unusual. It, uh, no, it wasn't actually, uh, it wasn't that hard of a decision at all. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, he calls me. I, uh, this is going to sound great. I didn't even really think about it. Mm. Like it wasn't like I had some big internal struggle. I said, no, no, no. I gave them my word. I, no. I have to stick by this. So you end up in Penn State. I end um, up at Penn State. And the the first year um, redshirted, which yes. is for explain what that actually yes, means. Yes, for for, uh, for our non football for our non American football yeah. so for people who aren't familiar with American football or who might be international. The idea is that. Uh, you're at university, you're a part of the team, but you don't play in any of the games. And the point of this is that that year does not count towards your four years of eligibility, like four years of which you're eligible to play for your team. So this is uh, this is common, not just in football, but in other sports. Uh, in football, it's most common for offensive linemen to sort of be so-called redshirted, which was my position because you have to be very big, you have to be very strong, and so an extra year to allow, you know, a young 17-year-old boy to develop, this is almost a no-brainer. It's also common, um, just as a side note, in some other sports like, uh, it's recently common in track and field. I didn't realize that. And it comes, it's it's interesting because, you know, I had some friends who did track. 
it comes at surprising times. Like oftentimes people will take a random red shirt their junior year or some such thing. Huh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I always thought it was freshman year. Yeah, yeah. I always thought it was freshman year too until I sort of saw this phenomena where you'll have like uh you'll have like runners taking red shirts in like sophomore year or junior year in some random year. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. So you're so you redshirted first year. Um yes. you're you start to play after that. Um and pretty quickly you're starting. Yeah. Um, and you become you know, like a, a well-known established player on the team. Yeah. Simultaneously with this, um, you're also academically, you're, are, were you right in math and from the beginning there? No, so I, um, I started out in aerospace engineering because okay. my mom, mom told me right. I was going to be an aerospace <laughs> engineer, but uh, I didn't enjoy my engineering classes that much. Uh. And I found that my college math courses were my favorite. I was like enjoying my math courses a lot more because they felt a lot closer to the way that I learned math when I was younger. Mm. Like we're getting closer to sort of learning math from a rigorous point of view and also not being so focused on the result of the process. Like now that we're in college and sort of I'm taking higher level math classes, no one is just showing you a formula. No one is just sort of hand waving and say, okay, now we use this and we do it 10 times. They are justifying every single thing that they do and they're so focused on the process. And they're not so focused about the result, but the question of, of why. Why is this true? Why can we use this? Whereas my engineering courses, which, okay, first of all, tons of people become engineers, it's a great profession, but they were extremely focused on how. And sort of growing up, I was always a why person, much more than a how person. And so my math courses really sort of spoke to me and I switched majors and I didn't even tell my mother. <laughs> so you're, you're, I mean, it's interesting too, right? So you're kind of continuing to live this dual life at the same time, you know, like very public, very forward facing on the football field, mm -hmm. on TV, yeah. um, performing at the highest level as an athlete. Um, and then pursuing and performing at the highest level as an academic in the field of math. Mm -hmm. Did you feel as you're, as you're sort of living this life, um, did you feel like you were living two separate lives? Were they just a seamless integration? Did one inform the other or did you even examine that at the time? I didn't even examine it. And I can say they fit together seamlessly, not because they needed to have something particular in common, but that they had, you know, something very simple in common that I truly loved both. And to be great at either of them, it took talent, but it took a lot of hard work, it took a lot of dedication. It took, took a lot of love because it's not always easy. And uh, I mean, these are the characteristics that allowed me to be great at both of these things. Yeah, because it really seems, I mean, if you talk about pursuing you know, like athletic performance in division one school at the highest level, most people will tell you that takes 810% of your effort. Yeah. And then to be at the top of your class academically, mm -hmm. that takes 110% of your effort. Yeah. And somehow- um, Yeah, 220% like, right. is I mean, like, you're the math guy. It's higher than, it's than, higher than <laughs> right. 100, how does this work? Yes. Um, but you're just like heads down. It sounds like so much of it came from that mindset that was instilled from your folks, like in the earliest days, it's like, you can do hard things. You put your head down and you just work to make it happen. And, yeah. and, and you know, it shall be. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, 
in the middle of your time in Penn State, this was also a really interesting and hard time to oh, be yeah. at Penn State because mm -hmm. of what happened. Yeah. I mean, uh, in my opinion, it was the perfect time for me to be at Penn State, actually. So, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll talk about this a little bit. So at Penn State, there was this football coach, a guy by the name of Jerry Sandusky, who uh, was sort of a uh, an extremely sort of uh, praised football coach. He, you know, he was a linebackers coach. Penn State is often called linebacker U. I don't, I can't tell you the exact years he coached, but I know he retired right around 2001, I believe. And so in 2011 or 2012, allegations came out about this retired coach, Jerry Sandusky, regarding child abuse. And in particular, raping young boys. And when this came out, I recall, like I recall what I was doing. I was, uh, we were on a bye week, which means we didn't have a game and it was the weekend and I was doing math and hanging out. And I saw this news sort of about, you know, like former Penn State football coach is charged with, you know, I, I don't even know what the legal term for it is, but uh, I saw this and the first thing I thought is, who's Jerry Sandusky? Because I, I have no clue who this person is. I didn't really think anything of it until uh, until like a day or two later on Monday when you know I show up to the building and there's there's cameras everywhere, there's reporters everywhere, and it's this huge circus. And why is it a circus? Well, first of all, this is just an awful thing. You know, this you know this man's former Penn State football coach raping young boys, but even more so was the fact that sort of he was really doing so sort of with a whole community sort of fooled and ignorant and unaware. And it was just, uh, first of all, it was just unfathomable. And okay, I mean, this has been sort of a, a really enjoy enjoyable podcast on sort of a high note, but you know, to talk about this, it's uh it was really a it was a time in my life that really changed my perspective of the world and changed my perspective of people in the following way so there was you know there was a lot of scandal going on and lots of things but one of the things that I want to sort of touch on that I think is interesting is this man managed to convince an entire university, an entire town, an entire community that he was a good person. And imagine you're this awful, evil person. You have this awful, like evil habit. And most people, I think, would try their best to hide it, to try their best to do this in secret. This man started a nonprofit charity called The Second Mile, which actively sought out young boys without father figures from underserved backgrounds. And he used this charity to feed him young boys who he was easily capable of exploiting. And an entire university and community helped him, unknowingly helped him do this. 
And this man was even able to convince people, people who I knew and I thought and I know quite well, who I consider to be bright, intelligent people, he managed to fully convince them that he's innocent. He's completely innocent. And this time in my life is when I truly, truly learn just how dangerous it is when you have a very smart, a very brilliant person who is also evil. This is a scary, scary combination. I didn't think a person was capable of of, of doing such a awful feat, of having such, you know, you know, of doing, I knew people were capable of doing, you know, awful things, but capable of doing awful things and doing them so cunningly. I mean, yes, this man was caught. He was caught when he was 70. He's, he's been doing this for decades and decades and decades. Like it was, it was just a crazy time. And, uh, okay. Sort of our role in this as Penn state football players, this is minuscule compared to what's going on, but I was happy to be there at that time because I can say wholeheartedly, Penn State is an amazing place. It's a beautiful university. I loved playing football there so much. Like this was the favorite part of my football career, playing football on Saturdays in front of 106,000 with all of my best friends. I mean, these are the guys you live with, you eat with, you sort of go out with, you hang out with. And a university that's given me so much that, you know, I feel like I'm a part of the Penn State family. I am. And to show the world that, no, Penn State is a great place full of amazing people doing great things, and one man does not define the university. And I was really glad to be there at that time to be a part of that, to give back to a university, university that's given me so much. Yeah, because I mean, it seemed like the um, as as this whole story unfolded and it unfolded in a very public way. Yes, there was a very you know like the the media loves to sort of like tell one big homogenous story about mm -hmm. you know it's not it, it was the man and then you know like soon after we found out you know like Paterno gets basically the entire um, staff and the coaching staff ends up you know, exiting. And yes. I, I guess Paterno had planned on leaving before that anyway, who was- Yes, he was planning coach. on leaving anyway. But, but anyway, yes. ev everything sort of like the web broadens out and it gets yes. very dark. Um, yes. I think a lot of the public narrative is that, you know, like this is a bad place. This is yes. a dark place. Like there's no, there's no distinction between, you know, like what happened within a particular arena context and group of people within- yes. The, the institution and the entirety of the institution, the entire history of it and yes. the entire student body that was there at the time. Yes. Um, you know, there was, there was a broad stroke that, that got painted in the public discourse, it feels like. So it's so interesting for me to be able to talk to you about that experience from being there, from being a part of that team and mm -hmm. living it from the inside out yeah. and how you experienced and like your decision to want to tell that fuller story and, and place or like a, a role in being public about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they sort of said that this was, this one specific thing was sort of a clear sign that Penn State as a university has serious, serious issues and sort of was sort of very condemning of this place. And I have to say that uh, it's probably hard to believe unless you're there. 
And, you know, if, you know, a lot of people, you might not like believe that this man is capable of all that I'm claiming he is capable of, but it was shocking to me. And it was shocking that it was shocking just the ability that this one person had to literally fool an entire community. And as crazy, I mean, it sounds absurd. And, you know, this is what I mean when I say it really changed my worldview. Hmm. Like, I didn't realize people like this, like, truly existed. When you see it up close, when you talk to people that you know and you really respect, and they fully believe that this man is innocent, that's just, like, that's a testament to me to just show how unreasonably good this man was and still is at convincing people of something in light of overwhelming evidence. As you said, the impact on the people who were victimized is not to be understated. And at the same time, you were going through, you know, the the effect that this had just on a practical day-to-day way on you um, and on the team was also just sort of devastating. You know, it was, it, it, the entire staff was essentially, you know, like exited. Um, new people were brought in. The governing bodies effectively you know, made it brutally hard for the team to function, mm-hmm. um, let alone to recruit new players and all this stuff. And look, like without going, we're not going to go into that rabbit hole of whether that was appropriate or inappropriate. Mm-hmm. It was just, it made it very hard for you to be somebody who was there doing something that you absolutely loved. And then seeing so many of the people who led this effort um, leave, dealing with the social context of what was happening mm-hmm. on around you. And then at the same time, knowing that what was happening with with the team, the limitations that the mm-hmm. NCA had, had sort of yes. imposed, making it brutally hard to yeah. do the very thing that you love to wake up yeah. in the morning mm-hmm. to do. Um, and uh, I will say, I'm, I'm happy to actually briefly tackle that question. Yeah. Those things with the NCAA, I mean, they effectively tried to sort of completely end the Penn State football program without giving us the death penalty. It certainly was not fair. I feel very comfortable saying this, but it pales in comparison to sort of the broader injustice that was done in this sort of, in this situation. It pales in comparison. It's not even comparable. And that's sort of my, that's my personal view on it. Yeah. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So you end up staying there. Um, yes. You actually end up finishing your undergrad early and then committing yes. to a master's um, yes. there. And even though there were certainly, you know, there was a curiosity about going somewhere else, mm-hmm. back to Stanford or yeah. you stay there, yeah. you finish out your time. And then as you're finishing out your time there, mm-hmm. you get to a point where um, three initials, three letters, you know, started to, to become a part of your conversation in NFL. Yeah. You know, you know, am I actually, do I have the opportunity or is it possible for me to actually go pro? Mm-hmm. When did that as a real um, opportunity really first start to enter the conversation for you? After my junior year. Huh. Yeah, it wasn't until after my junior year. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, people would, people would mention this to me a little bit, but uh, I didn't really pay too much attention I didn't think it was a real thing, and uh, really, I was just focusing on like being an offensive lineman in the Big Ten. I mean, this is something I dreamed of when I was younger. Like, I would watch like Michigan and Jake Long on TV, and I thought, "Wow, I want to be an offensive lineman in the Big Ten." Like, this was my biggest football dream. Yeah, yeah. And also at the time, you're what, six three, two twenty, two thirty, and the guys who are playing your position in the NFL. Like I'll kind of dwarf you. Yeah, like <laughs> you know, to imagine that is yeah, kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, but, yeah, when you're in yeah when you're a high school kid, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so so and at the same time, you're you know you've got stunning academics. You have mm-hmm. a world of opportunity being offered to you there. Yes. What was it that made you that kind of like put the weight on the scales that said I'm going to see if I can actually do this? Well, I started getting a lot of interest. I started getting a lot of sort of like signals that John you're probably going to be drafted. This was before my senior year. Mm. You're probably going to be drafted and you're going to be drafted like, you know, decently high. And uh, I I thought, you know what? I love football. I've been playing football for so long. Let's play football at the highest level. Let's experience this. Let's do this. You can only do this once. You know, you only have one chance. You know, if you if I sort of finished my career at Penn State and went to start a PhD, there's no going back really. And so I thought, no, let's do this. Mm. Yeah. Sort of like I can always pursue the PhD and what Yeah, I can always that, pursue the PhD this later. This is my one shot. Yeah. This is my one shot. And my father, my father was very big on sort of the NFL as well. Yeah. yeah. So the draft comes around and yes. for those who don't know, the way that basically there's a, I guess a three or four day window. Um, yeah, like a three day window. Three day window, yeah, right? Yeah. Where, where, you know, out of, 15, 20,000 potential people who could be eligible. 
there are like 200 to 300 spots. Yeah. And then the teams essentially based on, you know, like certain rankings and, and, and privileges, they just start going down a list, yeah. picking players. And this happens over a period of three days. And, you know, everyone kind of knows like all the top guys who are going, going first and second. Yes. You get, you know, like three days in, I guess. Yeah, so and, I'm on the third day. Right, your name still hasn't been called. What's going through your mind? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I knew I was going to be, okay, no one ever knows they're going to be drafted, but I knew with very high probability I would be drafted. But uh, I waited much longer than expected. I, uh, you know, you know, it's a, you know, it's a bad sign when you go to like Yahoo Sports and the single best available player across all positions is you for like a number of picks. This is, uh, and when you're on like Mel Kuyper's like uh, best available pick after pick after pick, this is not where you want to be. You want to be, or at least I want to be, you want to be the pick where our team picks you and they said, wow, we really didn't expect this player to go this high. You don't want to be the player where, you know, they pick you and they say, we were so surprised they managed to get this player this late. And I was, I was the latter. Mm. Yeah. Right before you actually um, get picked up eventually by the Ravens, Baltimore Ravens, you got a phone call right before the draft. Yeah. What was that about? Yeah. So right before I got drafted, you know, the Ravens call me and, you know, they're, they're making small talk. They, they, you know, they call everyone before they draft them just to talk to you and, you know, things like this. And uh, yeah, they were having some fun with me. So, you know, making lots of small talk. Yeah. It sounds like also they were they were trying to suss out one final thing, which is that because they're putting it, like they have a fixed number of choices. Yes. You know, and if they take you on, then they're saying no to somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like what they were trying to suss out also was like, okay, so here's a guy who's extraordinary at this, but he also has tremendous other opportunity. Like, yes. Are you legit in on football yes. and only football? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, so you end up you end up um, signing with Baltimore Ravens. That's true. So you are a pro player. Yes. What's it like the first day that you show up there? Yeah, I just uh, I keep my head down and I get to work. This is sort of this has always been my attitude. Anytime I'm in a new place in a new environment, keep my head down. Don't say anything. Don't you know? Don't make. Don't cause any attention. Just learn. And work hard. Yeah. And good things will happen. And good things do and do indeed yes. happen. So you end up, you know, on the field relatively quickly, yes. um, playing, doing really well. And not too far into your career, um, you also get hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you get a concussion. And yeah. it sounds like a pretty substantial one. Yeah, yeah. Which brings up a whole another issue, which is, you know, and, and this has become a big part of the public conversation mm -hmm. about football these days also, which is um, concussion and how that can lead to CTE, which is short for, what is it? Uh, basically traumatic brain injury. Um, and it's not quite it. It's actually, it's sort of like the degradation of brain tissue over time from repeated um, hits, but I'm forgetting yes. what the initials stand for. Although, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's no expert on this in this room. Yeah, sadly, but right. uh, but yes, the, you, this is the gist of it. Yeah, and um, and there's research that starts to come out mm -hmm. um, that starts to show to examine the brains of actually deceased football players, pro yes. players, and show some really alarming things. Um, so some, when some alarming, but uh, very misleading. 
So tell alarming me, but very talk misleading. Me, talk me through this. In the sense that uh, it's alarming because, okay, they sort of do this and they show certain numbers. And I have to say I've become like far too familiar with this sort of particular research article than I ever really wanted to be. But because now, like, because, okay, I retire sort of right around when this comes out. Right. So now everyone's asking me about it. So now I need to, now I feel like responsibility to like, okay, now I really need to know what's going on because everyone's bothering me about this thing. And so I'm like more, I'm more, uh, I'm more qualified to talk about this than I ever wanted to, than I ever would want to be, or I do want to be. But the idea is the headline is something along the lines of, you know, they test brains of deceased football players and the percentage of brains that had like CT, I think it was like, what was it? 98%, something 99% like that, yeah. or something, some very high number. But uh, first of all, just that title in itself is uh, in the way sort of like, you know, the media picks up on this or I forget what the exact title was, but uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is sort of sensationalism in a sort of very strong way. And because the idea is, yes, okay, it's not that they've sort of like, it's not that they've, you know, said certain brains have degradation when they don't, but sort of the very act of asking people if they'd like to donate their brains for this study is already a self-selection bias. It's like a selection bias, yeah. Because what sort of former NFL player would say, Yes, I would love to donate my brain in particular to a study about long-term effects of brain injuries in the NFL. Well, who's going to sign up for this? People who are suffering from sort of like issues or have some strong suspicions about this. So it's sort of it's sort of misleading, although the article does mention that mention this issue, sort of the headlines don't. And I would say that what is the actual percentage? It's not 99%. It's not even close to 99%. It's also certainly not 0%. And it's not extremely, extremely close to 0% either. And so there's, you know, it's somewhere in between. But uh, I think the sort of like sensationalism of this sort of was a little out of hand. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. interesting to hear that lens on it, especially because you look at it from the, okay, so this is an interesting problem. Yeah. You know, and there are data points and there are assumptions and like, yeah, yeah. how do we go about like finding out what's, what's the, tr the truth here? Yeah. And I'll say that this is actually, when I talk about mathematics, this is one of the key uses. And this is one of the sort of, this is one of the reasons why math is so important. Not just if you're going to be a scientist or a mathematician or work in STEM, because you need to be able to think quantitatively in life, no matter what you become. Because if you don't, all of a sudden, you're going to have a really hard time coping and interacting with things in this world. Understanding what you know a certain loan means. Deciding between two different choices and figuring out which one is better. Or I would argue sort of perhaps most importantly, is being able to understand pieces of information that you're told and to be able to understand what it actually means and whether or not you believe it and what's inherently sort of uh, latent 
in that statement that you've just been told. And I would recommend for readers, okay, first of all, I'm here and of course we're talking about my book, but uh, and perhaps it's bad form to talk about someone else's book when you're on a podcast talking about your book, but uh, this book, How Not to Be Wrong by Jordan Ellenberg mm. is a fantastic read and it really addresses this concept of quantitative literacy for sort of functioning in this world. Because if you don't understand what you know a certain statistic really says or what is hidden in that statistic, you're much more likely to be easily misled. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could kind of zoom the lens out and you know, we keep using the word math. Yeah. Um, but it seems like the bigger thing that really really connects you with it and you're referencing here is it's it's a process of discovering what's real, a process of discovering yes. like what is true and what is not true. Yeah. And trying to move towards an outcome. It's like a process of proof. Yeah. Which fundamentally comes down to decision making, you know, and, yeah. and making better decisions in life and finding out what is real, what is not real and what is provable, what is not provable mm. and finding joy along the way. Um, it's it's actually, I have to say, it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, often I'll talk to, you know, some of my friends about things, especially perhaps some of my friends who, you know, maybe are in history or, yeah, well, perhaps one of my friends in particular who's in history and very interested in sort of certain social issues. And we'll often talk about things and, you know, he'll talk about certain statistics to me. And I'm always so you have to be so skeptical. And I think a healthy level of skepticism for everything you're told is a really great thing. Not to like really doubt people, but when you hear something, to ask yourself, what's hidden here? Are there any sort of confounding variables that sort of I should think about? Is there any way in which this thing I'm being told is sort of not directly related to the conclusion that it's trying to lead me towards in some way. And so sort of thinking sort of critically, I think is a really powerful tool yeah. when you take in information in this world. What's that famous line there? There lies, damn lies, and then statistics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanna start to come full circle a bit with you yeah. also. So um, you you end up playing. Um, yes. You you do have a concussion, but you come back completely fine. Yeah, and you make the choice that like that. I'm I'm going to keep going. Yeah, but not too long after, you also decide that it's it's time to actually stop playing. Yeah, and you go back and you decide, okay, so now it's time to dive back in and pursue your PhD at yes. MIT. Um, yes, as we sit here now, is that are you currently in the program? Or yes, I have out? one more year left. Okay, so I'm graduating next spring. Right. What's your intention? I mean, do you have, are you, right now, are you just awash in the joy of discovery or do I you am, have... <laughs> so it's, it's almost a little bit like my senior year at Penn State. Yeah. I'm sort of awash in the joy, but I'm sadly becoming more and more aware that like, I need to prepare for what comes next. Yeah. What and is that? So, do you have a sense? Uh, yes. For me, it's uh, academia. Mm. I love discovery. I love research. But a passion that I haven't had a chance to talk about here, but uh, I mean, okay, we can only talk for so long, but uh, I really enjoy inspiring young people and I love teaching. And part of this is born out of the gifts I've been given through, you know, specific, through a specific professor and, you know, multiple professors who took a real interest in me 
and who sort of without them, I certainly wouldn't be a mathematician. You know, I find it important that I do that as well. And I want to do that in the form of being a math professor. Hmm. Love that. So as we sit here um, in the context of this conversation, yes. Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? To do what you love, I would say. Hmm. So live a good life, it's to do what you love. And for me right now, it's solving hard math problems, trying to show other people the beauty of math, perhaps in a way that they're not used to seeing it, inspiring young people, and spending, spending lots of time with my daughter. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S P A R K E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.